over just a few pages to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Seth Hawkins will be very happy this morning. We are taking the most verses we've taken so far in this letter. Uh, we're actually going to take three of them. Um, I guess we did look at verses 3, 4, and 5 together, but there's more in verses 9, 10, and 11. That's where we'll be this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, 10, and 11. Um, verses 3 through 11 have been Paul's introduction to this letter, to this church in Philippi, these believers, these Christians that he's been um, enjoying a relationship with, uh, a, a close commitment with, even that's, that's transcended distance and time and all of those sorts of things that we've talked about. And in verse 3, he began this letter on a, on a uniquely positive note. He often begins his letters on a positive note, expressing thanksgiving, but this one is different. It's laced and, and saturated with terms of endearment, and verse 3 is unique itself. Paul's reminding them in verse 3 and 4 that he prays for them often, regularly, and every time he does, he has uh, an expression or attitude of thanksgiving for them. He's grateful to God uh, for them being in his life and him in theirs. Then he goes on to some other explanations, and by the time we get down to verse 9, where we're at this morning, he tells us the actual content of his prayers. Beyond just expressing thanksgiving to God for them, he's actually praying for them, and he's praying some very specific and very important things for them, exemplified even in the fact that we know he's in prison while he's writing this letter, and he's saying even in prison, you are my concern, and these are the concerns I have, and I'm praying for these matters. So look with me in verse 9. Let's read verse 9, 10, 11, and then we'll come back and see what um, Paul is getting at in these verses. He begins with this transition word, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In verse 9, Paul tells us the content of his prayer. Verses 10 and 11 are the reasons for his prayer, but verse 9 is exactly what he's praying for. This is what I'm petitioning God for concerning you people, and it's not surprising to us that it's love. I pray that your love may abound. Now, he doesn't tie an object to this love. Uh, he, he doesn't say your love in a certain regard may abound. And so some people have uh, take an opportunity there uh, to see a general kind of statement about love. And they espouse that Paul is praying for their general inclination towards love. I'm praying that you'll be a people of love and not a people of hate. That yes, you'll love God, and yes, you'll love each other, and yes, you'll love uh, the lost, you'll love the world around you, all those sorts of things. I just want you to be people that are more inclined to love than you are to bitterness or hatred or, or whatnot. And there may be a, a, a ring of truth to that. But I think Paul's prayer and concern is much, much more specific. Now, the whole letter has been concerned with and is concerned with what? The unity of this church. 
They have both internal and external pressures upon them that are what? Threatening their unity. And the immediate context, verses 3 through 11, is all about their unity. Over and over again, Paul has labored and emphasized and, and pointed out their need to be together. He's using terms like partnership. Uh, he's using the plural you and your and the word all to in, indicate to them that none of you are alone in this. You're bound together as a body of Christians. And so by the time we get to verse 9, it would be abnormal for him, strange for him, to change his direction and change his, his purpose and his point without telling us that he's doing so. And so I think by the time he gets to verse 9, he's saying, I'm praying for your love specifically for each other. That you would be a people marked by love for each other. That when anybody asks about you, when anybody watches you, when anybody's among you, they see you have a real, honest, genuine love for one another. Now, he's not talking about worldly kind of love here. We do need to define what kind of love he, he means. He's not talking a, a romantic kind of love. He's talking the biblical kind of love. A biblical kind of love is a high, deep regard for and commitment to the good and well-being of one another. So beyond just emotion and beyond just a feeling, though affection is involved in that, he's saying, I want you to have an honest, deep, lasting commitment to one another's good, to one another's well-being, to the best for one another. Biblical love is both a commitment and a sacrificial kind of love. In other words, biblical love amongst you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ expresses itself in terms of commitment to each other, lasting, deep commitment that's not threatened by trivial disagreements or conflicts or differences, and simultaneously, a sacrificial kind of love where I put you before myself. As he'll say later in this letter, have a higher regard for others than you do for yourself. Care more about others than you do for yourself. That church is otherworldly, isn't it? The, the common trait among human beings is selfishness and self-centeredness. And all of us testify to that. And so for us to care for another person, care for a brother or a sister in Christ, who though may be different than us, are bound to us in Christ, to care for them more than we care for ourselves, says what? God's powerful working in my heart has taken place. It's a declaration of the gospel. And Paul writes and he says, I want you to have that kind of regard for each other. Not just a tolerate and not just a put up with kind of each other. Not just a, hey, I'm going to have to grit my teeth and hold it together for about two hours on a Sunday morning and put up and tolerate these people. No, I have a deep, lasting commitment to these people. I sacrifice for them. If for no other reason than the fact that they are my brother or they are my sister in Christ. That, by implication, involves much more time than just being together on Sunday mornings, but 
even in our time together on Sunday mornings, our love is to be exemplified by commitment and sacrifice. Now in verse 9, Paul's not just praying for that kind of love to exist. He adds some words to that kind of love in verse 9. He says, I pray that your love for each other, that kind of biblical love, would what? Abound. It carries this, this imagery or this meaning of limitlessness. Um, bounding forward without being contained. Bounding forward in an unhindered kind of way. I want this love, he says, to be generous among you. I want you to have a lavish kind of love for each other. A love that's not hemmed in. A love that's not based on biases or, or preconceived ideas. A love that's not built around certain kind of boundaries. But a love for each other that extends past all these social boundaries. It's an abounding kind of love. But then he adds another qualifier to it. It almost seems repetitive. I pray that your love for each other may abound more and more. Now, in one sense, an abounding love kind of carries that imagery more and more, right? A love that keeps on going, it keeps on committing, it keeps on sacrificing, it keeps on extending. But Paul's not just merely being repetitive here for emphasis, though he is emphasizing something. When he says more and more, he's emphasizing its progressive nature. In other words, he's talking about its growth. I want you to have a growing, boundless love for each other. A love that's not just stagnant. A love that's not just status quo. A love that's not just flatlining as if I cross the threshold of love and, and then I'm good. Oftentimes we're tempted to think of biblical commands in terms of a one-time goal or a mark to be met or a milestone to be achieved or a target to be hit. And Paul's saying it's not just love. It's not just that you cross this threshold of love. I want you to have a boundless love that keeps growing. You become more and more loving. More and more generous in your love. More and more limitless in your love. It's a long-term view to the way that they treat each other. A long-term care to the way that they treat each other. Why is Paul so concerned about these matters? Why in the darkness and the despair of prison life is Paul so wrapped up, so concerned, so emphatically addressing the relationships of these Christians hundreds of miles away from him? And years removed from him. Church, it's because God cares about our relationships with each other. Why is Paul so concerned with such a kind of love expressed to each other? It's because God is so concerned with the kind of love expressed to each other. God deems it as seriously important the way we view one another, the way we interact with one another, the way we treat each other, the way we think about each other, the way we speak towards each other. It matters to God. 
John tells us why in 1 John all over that whole letter. He says, because if you know the love of God, it will manifest itself almost immediately and quite clearly in the love of God's people. And then he says, and in much more stark terms, the inverse of that is true. If you don't love God's people, it's quite clear that you don't know God's love. God is so concerned with the way we treat each other because it expresses whether or not we actually have tasted and know God's love ourselves. And so Paul says, I'm concerned about the way you you care for each other, the attitudes you have toward each other. I want you to have this boundless, limitless, lavish, generous, growing kind of love toward each other. He's raising the bar for us, isn't he? Because the standard isn't to just love. The standard for the Christian is to keep on loving. And to grow in our love for each other. Now he adds something interesting in verse 9 to this love. And he does so with the word with. It's my prayer that your love may abound limitlessly and grow more and more with these two things. Knowledge and all discernment, or your translation might say uh, depth of insight, or something along those lines. So what's he saying when he adds knowledge and discernment? Why is knowledge and discernment connected to this boundless love? Why is it important? What's going on here? I think he's showing us both the kind of love and the ability of love that we have. So let's let's consider... Each one briefly. And I mean that word briefly. The first word, knowledge. What does he mean by knowledge? He doesn't just mean harboring facts or intellect. He's not saying that one must achieve a certain IQ level to have the kind of love that I'm talking about. Rather, he's saying that I want your love to be rightly informed and rightly grounded. A rightly informed kind of love. A rightly grounded kind of love. Which means we must know how and we must know what causes us to love in the way that Paul calls us to love. How are we to love like Paul writes about here? How are we to love boundlessly? What causes us to love boundlessly? Let me mention two things. When Paul says that we are to love with knowledge, he means first, on one hand, that we must know where that love comes from. And it doesn't come from ourselves. The kind of love that Paul calls us to exemplify towards our brothers and sisters in Christ isn't something that we're capable of in our own ability. And it's not something we're capable of by our own merit or by our own efforts. Notice here in verse 9, Paul says, I pray for these things. I petition God for these things. Why? Because we can only love each other rightly if we get that love from the source who is God Himself. We are dependent upon God to love each other rightly. We are dependent upon God to love each other boundlessly. 
And so he says right loving can only come from God's work upon our hearts. That's why I pray and implied that's why we must pray too. This kind of love isn't something we conjure on our own. But it doesn't mean, just because it's God's work in our heart, it doesn't mean that we sit idly by, right? When we read of God working upon our heart, that motivates us. It doesn't disable us. It fuels us to chase after and pursue after those kinds of things. Specifically, this kind of love. So the second thing I would say is, when it does come to our efforts, to love with knowledge means that we know who our motivator is, and that we look to His example. Who motivates us? And who is the example of our love? Christ. We look to Christ to know how to love. That's an important point because we're tempted to look to ourselves, aren't we? And we're tempted to base our love on each other. We're tempted to look at one another. We're tempted to look within ourselves to try to figure out how we're supposed to love and to try to conjure up these feelings or commitments of love. But when we look to ourselves, we find an inadequate response. And when we look to each other to figure out how to love, we tend to just focus on faults and offenses and shortcomings. But when we look to Christ, we remember the love that He's shown to us. There we learn what commitment looks like. In spite of the one whom you love. And there we learn what sacrifice looks like. Counting others more significant than yourselves. Putting others before yourself. Yet again, the standard gets raised, doesn't it? We don't look to the world to figure out how to love. We don't look to ourselves to figure out how to love. We don't look to each other to figure out how to love. We look to Christ to figure out how to love. We are called to love like Christ loves. We are called to emulate the love of Jesus towards one another. So to love with knowledge means to know personally and intimately both the source and the example of our love. The source is God. We need Him and are dependent upon Him. And the example is Christ. That means to love like Paul calls us to love, we must be motivated by the truths of Scripture. We look to the Scriptures to learn about the way that God empowers us. We look to the Scriptures to learn about the way that Christ loves us. And only in proper relationship to Him can we love each other. The second thing that is mentioned in verse 9 is that phrase, discernment, all discernment, or depth of insight. Both carry with it the same sort of meaning. It carries an aspect of wisdom with it. It has uh, the implication of an ability to understand. The ability to apply or act or differentiate. That's what Paul's getting at when he says discernment there in verse 9. Or, or depth of insight. Why would boundless love in the church require discernment? Or depth of insight. And why add the qualifier to it? All. Not just a degree of discernment. But all discernment. Not just a degree of insight. But all the depth of insight. I think the 
reason is easy to understand. It's because we often don't know how to love like we're supposed to. In fact, it's not just that we don't know how to love like we're supposed to. It's that even in our best efforts at trying to love others, we tend to harm and hurt them. Many well-meaning statements given to a brother and sister in Christ have caused lots of damage. Loving brothers and sisters, trying to exhort, trying to encourage, trying to correct, trying to teach, trying to instruct, have shredded souls and hearts. It's because we're not inclined to love like Christ does, and we often don't know how to love like Christ does. Discernment is something we need. Depth of insight is something that we need. It carries with it the idea of acting on right perception in the right way. It's easy to hold the right knowledge, isn't it? It is incredibly difficult to rightly act on that knowledge. I think one of the most underrated prayer requests and underrated gifts of the Spirit is discernment. And we are dependent on discernment. Living out the truths that we know from God's Word in a right manner in this world is not as easy as it sounds all the time. And loving brothers and sisters, we know by experience, is very complex and difficult. We need depth of insight. We need discernment. We need to know how to appropriately and rightly show the love of Christ to one another. I think this is timely instruction for the world we live in. For the Christian church at large. Because there's a lot of confusion on what it means right now at least in my mind. On what it means to love brothers and sisters in Jesus. Some say that to love you must be accepting. And that the only right way to express genuine love is through grace and mercy. And that sounds good, doesn't it? But then that leads us to accept all sorts of things. And compromise on all sorts of things. So that we find whole ideologies being espoused. That to love others means that you just take them as they are. You accept their sin. You accept their lifestyle. You don't judge. You don't call it into a question. Etc. Etc. We know that, right? We identify with that. We hear that all the time. The other end of the spectrum, the exact opposite extreme, some think to love means to offend. To call out every nuance in a person's life. To police their sin. To run after every mistaken expression or every false thought that they have. Neither are right. The best example we have of one who loves with depth of insight and discernment is Jesus. And we watch Him in the Gospels. And it's remarkable to see how he knows how to deal with each individual appropriately. And he expresses love to each individual he encounters in the exact right way. And you know what is so remarkable about it? 
is that no two ways are the same. Some, his most loving act is to be very forceful and direct with. You think of just the whole Pharisee group for one, but you think of individuals like Nicodemus. He's pretty direct and forceful with Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? What's wrong with you? You think about the rich young ruler who thinks that he's kept all the laws and Jesus says, you're not, you're not there. And yet, the same man, the same character, the same Savior, Jesus, can walk up to a Samaritan woman at a water well, engage her with a conversation, knowing that she's had five husbands and she's living with a guy now, and yet is incredibly patient with her as she questions him and questions worship and tries to get him off subject. He's compassionate towards her. He's kind and gentle with her. And she, she's the one he reveals for the very first time that he's the Messiah to. It's because he has depth of insight. He has discernment. He knows how to love each person exactly how they need to love, be loved in every exact situation. He's not just going through routine. He's not just walking through a formula. He's exercising discernment. And you know what's incredibly challenging about all that? There is no clear-cut answer to give us on how to do that. Right? He doesn't write in Second Hesitations 3 that this is the way to do this. He doesn't give us chapter and verse on how to deal with this person and how to deal with that person and how to navigate this situation and how to handle that problem. Instead, he says, ask for wisdom and the Father who has wisdom will generously and graciously give you wisdom. He says, ask the Spirit who will be your helper and guide you into all truth. And reveal to you things that I haven't revealed to you? In other words, he says, I have something better than chapter and verse. I'll come and live in you. And if you ask, I'll give you my wisdom. And if you ask, I'll give you my discernment. And in my wisdom and in my discernment, I'll guide you on how you are to interact with people. I'll live in you and show you how to handle situations. Even furthermore, telling the disciples, I'll give you the words to speak when you don't know what to say. Paul writes and he says, I want you to love in this supernatural, otherworldly, radical sort of way that's boundless, limitless, and ever-increasing and growing. I want it to be based upon the truth of Scripture. It must be based upon the truth of Scripture. You must know where it comes from, and that's God. You must know who your example is, and that's Christ. And you need to practice it in terms of discernment. Depth of insight. Acting upon it in a godly way. So I would condense it all down again to say this. Paul wants us to not only love based out of and motivated out of a right knowledge, which is the truth, but he also wants us to apply and act on that truth in a right manner. Now, let me give you the warning. This does not come naturally, does it? 
It requires work. Effort. Time and commitment. It requires advanced thought. How can I love in this situation? How can I love that person that I seem to be at odds with? What's the loving expression to this situation, to that circumstance, to this group, to this time? It requires an abundant prayer life. Asking for wisdom and discernment and ability. It requires scripture saturation. Knowing what the Bible says about love. Looking at the characters in the Bible and how they love. This kind of love for brothers and sisters requires a very personal and close walk with Christ. And probably most challenging to us, this kind of love requires practice. Trial and error. Seeking forgiveness. Practicing confession. Looking to love your brothers and sisters and then owning up when you mess it up. And asking for forgiveness when you mess it up. And then extending forgiveness when you've been messed up. It requires practice. But as hard as these things may be, they're worth it, aren't they? They're worth it. Brothers and sisters all around the world in very hostile places would look to us and say, all I have is my church family. My biological family has forsaken me. If I come out in the open, I'm threatened. All I have is my church family. Yes, this love is important. One day, we may be all we have. But this love is also important because it glorifies God. It honors Him and obeys Him. And displays His powerful working in our heart. It advances the gospel. That's what Paul's going to get out in verse 12. It helps each other in this context live a life that honors God, right? That's what Christian brother and sister kind of love does. And so Paul says, I am praying for you. Not just telling God thank you. But I'm petitioning God that you may have this sacrificial, long-term committed love that's lavished and generous and boundless and ever-increasing and ever-growing based on the Scriptures applied with wisdom and discernment. Verse 10 and 11, so that, for this reason. He mentioned several ambiguous things in verses 10 and 11. We're going to run through them really quickly. I just said briefly, so you're probably not going to believe me. But um, verse 10 and 11, real quickly, four things that he mentions here as the reason for his praying like this. That word so that is the connection, the, the purpose statement. What I do in verse 9 is supposed to lead to verse 10. The first thing he says is, approve what is excellent. A very unique outcome 
Now, there's a lot of difference in interpretation in what's taking place in verses 10 and 11. Why is Paul saying, this is the result of my desire for you to love? If you love this way, these will be the results. And he doesn't specify. So what is he saying when he says, approve what is excellent? What does he mean by excellent? And in what realm are we approving excellence? Well, in one thing, one way, he means not discerning between good and bad or right and wrong, but discerning between good and best. And so that means in our love for one another, we must put forth the effort not to just minimally love each other, but to love each other in the best possible way. So that you might know and approve how to best love in the church. In other words, good isn't always good enough, right? But that you may, I want you to, I'm praying that you would love this way so that you can love excellently, so that you can love in the best possible way. I think the other reason that I personally hold to that he mentions this is so that you would agree that love is excellent. So that you would, I pray that you would love each other so that in loving you may approve what is excellent. And what's excellent? Love is excellent. That you might agree with me that what you're doing is right and worthy and good and valuable. The second thing he says is so that you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And he ties that phrase both back to verse 9, their love, but also in their approval of what is excellent. It's the second time he's mentioned the day of Christ. He's mentioned it already in verse 6. But notice verse 6, it's God doing something to bring us to the day of Christ. But in verse 9 and 10, it's us doing something to, to get ready for the day of Christ. Which means, though God works on one hand, again, that doesn't mean we don't work on the other hand. Rather, God's promise in verse 6 is what motivates Paul to pray in verse 9. If God's going to complete His work in you in verse 6, then I feel safe and confident to pray for your preparation of the day of Christ. How are we prepared for the day of Christ? With purity and blamelessness. Now, he's not talking about the individual's purity and blamelessness here. He's talking about the church's purity and blamelessness here. What does he mean by purity? He means sincerity. Literally, he means with no hidden motive or pretense. In verse 15 uh, and 16, he's going to condemn certain preachers because they preach with hidden motives and pretense. They have a hidden agenda. But that shouldn't be the case for God's people when it comes to loving each other. There's no secrecy, no hidden agenda, no hidden motive, no pretense. We love honestly, sincerely, genuinely. In other words, our love isn't manufactured. It's to be real. Not a show, not an act, but to be real. The word blameless literally means not to give offense or cause stumbling. He, he uses the same word in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, when he says not causing a brother to stumble. So to love 
and to love in the best way means to love sincerely, genuinely, and not in a way that's offensive or stumbling. I think there has been this weird dynamic take place in the church where we read about in God's Word that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so in some strange, abnormal, messed up way, we almost relish in persecution. If I'm persecuted, I must be doing something right. Or if you're persecuted, you might just be acting like an idiot. We relish in persecution. We relish in offending people because then we think we're actually speaking the truth. And Paul says, not when it comes to loving brothers and sisters. Your love is to be sincere. It's not to be stumbling. It's not to be offensive. And in that way, you're prepared for the day of Christ. Which means, if you're not loving this way, if, if you're not loving to the best, to approve what is excellent, you're not going to be ready for the day of Christ. Listen to what Paul's saying to this church who's having their unity threatened. He's saying, if you're not loving each other, you're incomplete. And there's coming a day when the Lord will lay bare your heart. And on that day, the, the way to be ready is to love purely and blamelessly. Thirdly, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's also directly connected to approving what is excellent and to the kind of love that he's praying for in verse 9. Saving you all the different variances of interpretation. Let me just say, I think what he's getting at is when he says the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, he's saying that righteousness that comes from Christ is manifested through the love that you have for each other. He draws the comparison to his righteousness and Christ's righteousness in chapter 3. And he says it's much more worthy to have Christ's righteousness than my righteousness. What does Christ's righteousness look like? This love that is excellent, pure, and blameless. That's the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. That's the fruit of a heart that's been changed by Jesus. And then he tells us, fourthly, in verse 11, all to the glory and praise of God. God is pleased, delights in, is glorified by the way we treat, think, view, speak, act towards one another, by the love we have for each other. As I said at the beginning, our relationships together as brothers and sisters in Christ, they matter to God. They're important to God. And so they're important to Paul. They should be important to us. This is a, a pastor's prayer for love's growth in nine, verse 9, 10, and 11. And to start off his letter, he's telling this church, don't let these pressures jeopardize your harmony and your unity. Instead, choose and value love. That's the way of God. That's the fruit of Christ. And that's what will glorify God. Church, in a world that will be increasingly hostile to us, we are to be a people marked by love. Marked by love for each other. And yes, marked by love for God. But that can only take place if our hearts have first been changed by God. 
who is, as I said, our source. And then for us who have been saved and changed by God, it can only happen if we fix our eyes on Christ, not on ourselves. And so you must first ask and see and examine, am I actually a Christian? You know, John, again, in 1 John says that if you love God's people, then you know God's love. If you don't, know God's pe- don't love God's people, you don't know God's love. And he tells us in chapter 4, verse 8, why? Because God is love. Looking at the way you view your brothers and sisters in Christ is a clear indication of the condition of your heart in terms of Of relating to God. Are you right with God? And if by grace you are. Then are you looking to Christ? To help you love your brothers and sisters? To show you how to love your brothers and sisters? To rest in his love for you. Those are the questions you need to answer today. Father. We want to love each other. Because a love for each other shows that your love has entered into our hearts and our lives. Help us to testify to a lost world of the good and pure changing power of the gospel by the way we care and love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.